Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara, ye Sodavanta Bamunjantu Satang. This has been an inspiring event. It always inspires me, at least, to see Amon go forth. And. Uh, because of the strong commitment, and because it sounds very altruistic and uh, in its form, but that's what inspires uh, our mind. We we need inspiration, possibility of of getting beyond just limitations and and uh, the worldly um, things that bind us and cause us that uh, we create suffering with and they uh, when Sister uh, Sumeta she was asking to cross the stream of suffering to realize Nibbana these, these kind of words And in the life of uh, Samana, like uh, the Pali word, the generally uh, kind of generic term for people committed to the holy life is the word Samana. And so the idea of the Samana is to lead a very simple life. The monastic form actually simplifies everything. Uh, life does get very complicated, especially now with all the d- demands of family, uh, work, profession, um, peer pressure, and all the rest. Uh, we even in a in a modern society like this one, we find uh, the sense of being stressed and life being complicated. Monastic monasticism is, even though it might seem complicated, when you just kind of look at the discipline and uh, with a worldly mind, you might feel it's just adding more complications. But actually, the the form itself is is a form to simplify. Uh, we we don't have that many choices or options available to us. We live within in the restraints of uh, an agreed discipline and uh, tradition. And the point of that is not to, it's not for attachment or identity, but for reflection, so developing our reflective capacities. And many people wonder what I'm talking about, reflecting, reflection. These are the kind of words that, that uh, we have in English to describe what we're doing. Uh, 
And with uh, language, of course, mostly we've been trained to use uh, our language for analysis, for thinking out things, for for uh, solving problems, worldly problems, with logic and reason. And so our thinking process is uh, we become bound to it and uh, caught up in thinking as our... Um, as, as a, it's such a strong habit because uh, modern education is is developing that ability to think, and so think nothing wrong with thinking or or criticizing the ability to think because it's a great gift. But as a, as an attachment, it's how we experience life through thinking. Then we tend to be limited by the very thoughts that we create. Uh, consciousness tends to see through, always want to define experience, or uh, through through analyzing it, through uh, defining it in some way. Where reflection doesn't necessarily imply thinking, but it can use thought to to remind, to point to, to emphasize something, not to, and not in order to think about it further, but to recognize. So when we talk about suffering or dukkha in the Pali, now we're not trying to figure out who's to blame for my suffering and and uh, and analyze why I suffer, uh, and because that would just increase the sense of of identity with I am my thoughts and my memories. But when we talk about the first noble truth, we're pointing to suffering. They, there is dukkha. We're not. It's not a, a kind of dogma, a statement uh, that we have to grasp and and uh, tr- and project onto life. We're not looking at life uh, in in that way as if it is suffering. But there is there, the the statement goes more like this: there is suffering. So that is the common human experience that we all share in various forms and degrees. But then if you grasp the idea that we're teaching about suffering as, as reality, uh, that's, you've missed the point, because that's a reflect, this is a reflection. Suffering is not to, to make a statement, but to remind us what is suffering as we experience it. So we, we start looking and we begin to notice our own sense of fear or anguish or disappointment, greed, uh, mental states that we, we're so used to and, and identified with that we, uh, we, we don't know how to deal with it except trying to get rid of it <coughs> in that modern life is, is a great attempt to try to get rid of suffering, try to annihilate it. So being a samana is the same, not like uh, giving Sister Sumaita the name Sumaita. I think uh, this, this is, you know, one can look at, you see, the name Sumato as as Ajahn Sumato, you think of as a person. 
uh, identify the name with me probably as uh, as my name. But it the Pali names aren't meant to be like that. They're not to be grasped and, and identified in a personal way, but to reflect on the, the actual interpretation is good wisdom. So it's not saying that that I as a person have good wisdom, that, that I'm a person with, with good wisdom, or that Sister Sumaita is a person with good wisdom. But it, it, uh, the name itself is for reflection, not for identification. I like to use recycle name amongst nuns that have disrobed because we, we tend to take it personally, you know, like uh, Arjun Anando, who is one of the monks that came over from Thailand with me, you know, so identified the word Anando, the name Anando, with that particular person that when I named uh, another monk Anando, some people didn't like that because they kept thinking of Ajahn Anando. And so, but this is for reflection, you know, not for, uh, not to, to see it in terms of some kind of title or that if we give that name to somebody, then it's his or her name that can't be used for anyone else. So when I was, uh, given the name Sumato, and but I meant good wisdom, I, you know, I felt <coughs> slightly embarrassed because <laughs> as a person, personality, I didn't feel like I, I could, uh, you know, it sounded a bit uh, hyperbolic in a way because my, my personality is like that. It tends to, to uh, be slightly embarrassed over things uh, where kind of exaggerations of of myself, <coughs> but then it wasn't meant to be uh, a, an identity that I'm someone with good wisdom. But it is a reminder. It's, it's a name that uh, has helps you to to reflect. Use the poly name for reflection rather than for attachment. Wearing the robes, learning how to use the robes. It, it, it's a, the, one of the advantages of monastic life is that you, you have to wear the robes. And um, so they're always a reminder of the commitment of the Samana life. That's how, you know, one mentally can forget about being a monk or a nun and still be caught up in the old habits that that one had as a lay person. <coughs> uh, and then you look at the robe and you, it reminds you. Every, the, the, the Buddha Rupas remind you, the temple reminds, the, the lifestyle reminds. And so we, we have all these ways of, of, of uh, remembering what, what our life is, what we're aiming for. So living in, in a monastery, isn't it? It's the things in the monastery, the stupa, the temple, the Buddha images, the candles, incense, flowers, the 
the monks, the nuns, the shaven head, the color of the robes, the anagorikas, anagorikas, all this, you know, if we, if we look at it in, in, in a, with a worldly mind, is one way. And uh, we, we can identify, you know, we, we form personal views and opinions, just like any, anybody else. But the aim of the form is to be able to reflect on that, to be able to stop just being caught up in the assumptions and habits that we've, we have as the, through our conditioning, through our lay life. The discipline is a moral one. We have moral agreements. So the <coughs> holy life is based on what they call sila, which translated into English, we, we use the word morality. <coughs> this is about action and speech. <coughs> and I always liked, I found the Buddhist approach towards morality very refreshing and a relief because my background, my religious background was being, was Christian. So, so in Christianity, I was told that, you know, bad thoughts, you could have immoral thoughts and, uh, and if you had dirty thoughts or bad thoughts, that was immoral. And so there was uh, always a sense of guilt because if you, if you feel, felt angry with somebody or you had sexual thoughts or things like this and you felt you were immoral. So morality almost seemed like such a high attainment, such an impossible attainment. Uh, that it, it made it, you know, just one felt only uh, resentment and despair. <coughs> because thinking, can thought, ha habit, thoughts that we have arise due to conditions. Until we're really aware, really fully mindful, then <coughs> we, we, we don't have that much control over our thinking. So, so then, well, you know, the sense of guilt and uh, about being uh, having bad thoughts. I'm a bad person. I have bad thoughts. Uh, and this sense of guilt is a very common problem in the Western world, in the Judeo-Christian uh, cultures. Where in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, they made it very clear that. Sila is about action and speech. Now, I do have something to say about action and speech. <laughs> you know, at that point, I can work on that level. I can de determine to, to, even though I might have bad thoughts, I can refrain from acting or speaking on them. So to me, this, this, this gave me a sense of, well, and morality is really something very useful rather than a, than a high mind, so high and, and impossible that, that you're only going to fail, you know, to try to just control your thinking, repress all your bad thoughts, and, and then try to hold your mind in a state where it only thinks beautiful, pure thoughts all the time. I couldn't do that. When I'm angry, then very angry thoughts arise. And when when one feels lust, then those kind of thoughts arise. And 
when when someone uh, you know feeling um, comp- you know thinking about the world and the the jealousies and the fears that that haunt human consciousness then of course you 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 tend to want to suppress and control everything and so the life of the samana is not meant to be an exercise in suppression controlling denying because that only leads to even worse problems we become neurotic we become sick in our in our minds if we if we're too controlling too judgmental so the the buddhist approach was uh, that's what appealed to me very much was the fact that then morality as a basis for spiritual life was was realizable it's it's practical it's useful <coughs> it's not an impossible demand or expectation because then in terms of awareness uh, we're looking at the way things are you know the impermanent nature of conditioned phenomena so a bad thought is impermanent just like a good thought <laughs> and and one in relationship then to the dark side of one's psyche uh the anger and resentment and then lust and greed and jealousy and fear are then seen in terms of dhamma rather than interpreted in terms of i shouldn't have such thoughts which then becomes more and more complicated we become neurotic the thing i like very much uh, attract me to buddhism was it, it was something i realized you could do it wasn't based on <coughs> on setting a standard so high that that uh, that th- that one could never attain it or realize that buddhism is a to the western mind of time seems very strange because it's a very it approaches the religious question from almost the opposite from say uh, um, uh, other religions which are usually based on metaphysical truths so when you're <coughs> starting from a metaphysical truth <coughs> this is uh, it's not denying that that truth but then most of us no don't can't can't really we we can only abstract it in the mind it's some kind of idea in the mind it's high and it and we uh, it's like the the nature of god or the ultimate truth when we when we try to imagine that or question it then we can only uh we can only say believe in what other people tell us about it but in terms of the four noble truths these are verifiable you know they're not they're not uh, truths that they're not metaphysical truths but they're are called noble truths which means that there's something that you and I can actually observe here and now 
and that process of their rising and ceasing, and through awareness, the uh, letting go of the causes of suffering to realize the path or the way of non-suffering. So reflection then is is like noticing, observing the way it is. What is when when we take the refuges in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha? That can be merely a perfunctory kind of recitation of that every Buddhist should say Bhutang Saranangachami, uh, and uh, but you don't quite know what that is. Maybe it's an ideal of some kind of Buddha force in the universe, or or uh, some kind of. Well, usually it becomes very abstract when we try to define Bhutang Saranangachami as some kind of ideal refuge, but. When we reflect on Buddha, Bhutang Sarnangachami, right now, it's not trying to find Buddha as, as some object out there or get some clear, precise definition of what that means from, from a text of some sort, but in actually uh, internalizing what is the Buddha then in terms of a refuge here and now. And so then you... You, you reflect on on the reality of now. Then it became apparent that Buddha is really awareness, awakeness. Now, in terms of my experience of awakeness, not some kind of abstract Buddha out there who's awake and and uh, and watching me, but. The awakeness that I can recognize, that I can be at this very moment, is the refuge in Buddha. So then the Dhamma is, is the truth of the way it is. The Buddha, this ability to, to be aware and awake, allows us to see, to realize the ultimate reality, the truth, the Dhamma, the way things are. <coughs> so we take refuge in Dhamma, Take refuge in Sangha. Sangha is, is, is like you and you and me. It's about human beings. You know, that practice the Dhamma. But not in terms of persons, personalities, or particular teachers or gurus, or taking refuge in, in some kind of abstract Sangha. But the, the Sangha always the word itself means a community, a group. But it also means this, this being right here, this human body here, refuge in, in, the, in the community of practitioners who practice the Dhamma. So then the three refuges are, I found very, you know, they inspire. I find them. I still find them inspiring. Uh, when when I when I didn't do this, when I didn't internalize the three refuges, then I could just say Bhutang Sarnangachami like a parrot. You know, it's what you're supposed to say, Bhutang Sarnangachami, and you no doubt can teach a parrot to say Bhutang Sarnangachami. <laughs> and I don't think the parrot reflects on what it's saying. <coughs> 
Now I can do the same thing. I can be just a parrot or awaken to take these words because they're, they're just sounds that we make, but they're they're reminders. They bring our attention to the way things are now. Now, because we we are very forgetful, and uh, and so heedlessness is 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 the cause of suffering. And the uh, but because we forget, we can also remember. So we have have these teachings, Four Noble Truths, we have Three Refuges, we have uh, the Dependent Origination, we have all kinds of, of teachings to remind us, not to grasp the teachings just as some kind of intellectual exercise, but to internalize them, to, to take them and, and reflect on what is this right now? What is greed? You know, and even though you might think you understand or you know what greed is, to recognize the presence of it when, when you're feeling greedy, when you want something, to recognize that greed is like this. So you're, you're not, you're not uh, judging greed and saying that there's anything wrong with it, but you're using the word uh, like lopa, dosa, moha, the three... Uh, uh, causes of suffering that we, when we attach to Lopa Dosa Moha, we're in the Sangsara or the world of birth and death. So, what is greed then in terms of this moment? So, then I begin to look at what I'm feeling, in, um, both emotionally or physically. Wanting something I don't have, seeing something that I want, uh, imagine fantasizing about something and that makes me feel, uh, you know, I, I, I makes me this greedy feeling, this emotion of greed arises, and you're you're observing it in terms of dhamma. Greed arises and ceases. So rather than seeing it as some kind of personal flaw in your that's that's uh, a, a danger to your monastic life see greed as something to to know know what it is not through going to the library and, and getting a definition but recognizing the reality of it when there's greed because we all feel greed hatred anger and delusion we feel confusion or insecure, emotions like this, unsure, doubtful, restless. And so we, and these are, you know, these are part of uh, all human experience. So instead of condemning them or trying to get rid of them, we, we reflect on them, we notice them, we awaken to them, because they are, they are the way they are. Like when, when, if I'm if I have feel greedy at this time, then I I can be aware. There's this uh, this feeling of wanting something I don't have, and it's like this. It's the way it is. 
when I put it in that context of reflection, then then I'm not attached to it anymore. I'm I'm with it. I recognize it, but actually the identity with it drops, and you you see it it, it is what it is. It's it, it's impermanent. You can't once you really see greed. When you're f- when you're feeling greedy, try to hold on to it. See how long you can deliberately feel greed with awareness, and you'll find out <laughs> that it doesn't last. You know, it's, it's very impermanent kind of emotion, mental experience. The life of the samana is based on contentment, and uh, like the four requisites. When after the Bapachar, then I gave uh, Sister Sumaita's admonition, called admonition, where you, you know, you, you recite the, you know, the, the idea of reflecting on four requisites. So this I found extremely helpful in this life, um, because the the four requisites are based on a very low standard. Rag, robes, just alms, food, whatever put is put into your bowl, uh, shelter for the night, and and uh, medicine for sickness. So these these are you know for we, we don't have money we we can't uh, we have no control over funds or property or things like this. So we depend on the goodness of others for our survival, and these requisites are not. You know, heavy demands on a, on the lay community. They're they're stated in such a way that they're, you know, if if people don't even bother to offer any any cloth to make a robe, you just go kind of scrounge rags. Even uh, big early because used to just go to the channel grounds where corpses were wrapped in cloth and take the cloth off the corpse. And make a robe out of it. Bungs a cooler cloth. Can you imagine anything more disgusting than that? <laughs> You'd have to wash it. <laughs> because that's cloth nobody wants, isn't it? Nobody wants the cloth on a corpse. So it's not, you know, you don't even have to ask for it. You can take it. But then in terms of, uh, you know, the katina ceremonies are always at the end of the vasa season. They're always about offering cloth. <coughs> so, you know, that I've never had to, to go to a charnel ground and, and take the cloth off a corpse and make a robe. It's never, uh, I'm, you know, people have always managed to give me uh, nice robes. But the standard then is low because if we have high standards, then of course we, we're discontented if we don't get what we want. I want pure cotton, high quality, uh, you know, silk, and get me only the best, best cloth. Then if you don't give me that, then I'm just going to be disappointed. I'm not going to experience contentment if I don't get what I want. So, because 
whatever cloth I get is always better than than the rags. Then there's then there's the the the, the development of gratitude. Gratitude is uh, for the kindness for what is offered. This is very important, I think, in modern society, Western society, where we tend to always, you know, we have high standards of what how things should be, what the kind of quality that we we want from the material world. And uh, you know, I was brought up to be to expect to try to always make things better and get the best and the highest quality. I love high quality things. tell the truth but, <laughs> but but it helps to reflect that rather than to reinforce that tendency so you see it's a way of training yourself not not trying to, to say I should only be content with what is offered and then when you're not just feel uh, you know that you're you're not a very good monk or a very good nun. That's not the point of it, but to reflect on on our, the way we we tend to react to to the life that we're living. It's like this. So discontentment, feeling uh, when you when you don't get the the quality that you want, and you feel. Uh, discontented with it, you can use that. Look at that feeling of discontentment is like this. And you see discontentment arises and ceases. The more you're willing to do that, then then contentment is the result of that. You can't make yourself into somebody that's content just as an act of will. Even though you might like to and long to do that, but you, you really can't, it's not possible. You learn contentment through, through understanding yourself, and through recognizing what discon the the pain and the 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 suffering you create through attaching to discontentment. Then in uh, the things never to be done or around. Uh, you know, this basic, like, uh, uh, murder and stealing, uh, sexual misconduct, and, and uh, boasting of states of, high, of a high attainments that you don't have. Because, you know, one can, you know, they people can be very impressed by saying, you know, I'm very highly advanced yogi and <laughs> and so a lot of people would, would think, you know, well you know, and and the, there's a lot of the these these gurus going around the world now who make all kinds of claims and they have huge followings too. <coughs> but this is uh you know, this is this is not we're, we're not, if we do this, you know, with the intention to delude, doesn't mean sometimes we, we can overestimate ourselves and tell people that maybe there's no intention to delude, maybe we're, we're overestimating our, ourselves and confiding to others, but so that wouldn't be a disrobing offense. But 
if we're actually using, uh, you know, boasting of attainment that we don't have in order to to delude others, then that is a disrobing effect. So the the moral the moral agreement in like we call the binaya the binya. This was established that when you live in a community, then you agree on conduct. So, and this is one of our great human blessings: is that we can agree on how we're going to behave with each other. We make moral agreement. Uh, and and so when and this doesn't mean this means that then when we do feel like if we they bana dibata not to intentionally take the life of another human being doesn't mean that one never feels the desire to murder somebody <laughs> doesn't mean that but it means that we don't do it <laughs> Then, in terms of like in a samana life, you know, it's, it's a disrobing offense to intentionally kill another human being. But even that, the, the nonviolent quality of the life is taken towards the uh, rights to live of all creatures. So we can't, you know, intentionally deprive other creatures of life, such as very annoying ones like mosquitoes and flies and slugs and 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 uh, Creatures that are considered, you know, quite good to kill in the in the lay world. And I was brought up to kill flies and mosquitoes. <coughs> so, it, you know, in, in training yourself in this way, I found in Thailand, uh, which is a very warm tropical country, there's a lot of uh, mosquitoes and ants and flies and things like this more than there are here, much more. So, so then uh, training myself, man, I certainly felt like, you know, it would bring up the old impulses to want to destroy mosquitoes and annoying insects. But then the reflection on that desire to kill, you know, I began to observe that because I'd taken that taken the, the vows of a bhikkhus, which made, made it so that I, I, had, I couldn't do that anymore. That was, the, that was the agreement on how I was going to live in the Sangha as, as a non-violent member. And that applied to even the animal world, insect world around me. Well, I've, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot uh, how to be patient how to respect the rights of other creatures to live. I could see my own conceit in the fact that I thought, uh, you know, my life is important, the mosquito's life isn't. Mosquito, you know, it's better to kill them. <coughs> and and um, my arrogance is that my life is very important. I'm an important person. But this mosquito, you know, it, nobody will miss it. Kill it, get it out of the way, they give you malaria and everything. Or changing from that perspective to mosquito wants to live just as much as I do. 
And who am I to say I, I have more right to this planet than it has? And I began to see just the assumptions I make, the kind of arrogance of being human, a human being, <coughs> that, that I assume, you know, a kind of importance in this universe and then make judgments about other creatures. So then by just observing this, reflecting on this, then I could, uh, once I could see it, once I had it, see, uh, allowed it to be conscious, fully conscious, then I could see the, the pain of, of operating from that assumption, from some kind of arrogance, uh, you know, uh, agreed arrogance that all human, most of human beings would agree on. It's good to kill mosquitoes. So in, in training yourself this way, you, you, it takes patience. When it's a lot of work. Patience is necessary because these are the mosquitoes, flies. Uh, many of these creatures are very annoying, irritating to us, and we 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 just want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. So by reflecting on our impatience, on our aversion, on our irritation, frustration, in this realm that we're living in, we develop. Uh, a basis of patience and contentment in which then joy is the result. Joy springs from, from contentment, gratitude, patience. Not from getting what I want. Like I can, I, you know, I can, I define happiness is getting what I want something and then I get it and I have this moment of happiness. Uh, but it can't sustain it. You know, then I have to want something else and get it to have another to be happy again. But I use the word joy for that that which arises out of non-attachment, the reality of non-attachment, with this basis of contentment and uh, gratitude, patience, forbearance. So these are. This is the movement of, of uh, you know, of taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Not, not they're no longer ideals, are they? That we we can't live up to. We're beginning to see and understand how that this is this is not asking too much or uh, may, uh, the impossible from us. This is all within our ability as human beings to practice in this way. Morality, I think, in the West tends to, to, it comes from authority, you know, so it's usually made in the form of commandments. God kind of saying, thou shalt not kill. So it's, it's uh, just that, that way of speaking from above and uh, uh, of authority and commanding you and then punishing you if you break the commandments. And that's how I that's how I was trained uh, in my cultural background was uh, these these kind of moral imperatives from above, and uh, and I couldn't help but resent it, you know. 
Well, I think we all rebelled against authority and and moral imperatives when we were young, because <laughs> we didn't understand. And morality always tend like you hear it in, uh, you know, in the fundamentalist uh, kind of religion, like fundamentalist Christianity or Islam, where it it's used as a threat, you know, punishment result if you break the moral laws. You're a bad sinner, you're a heretic, you're a blasphemer. We can put a fatwa on you. Fair enough. <laughs> and so morality oftentimes is, is associated with bigotry in, in, our, in our psyches. In the Victorian, we talk about Victorian morality was this, was this very threatening kind of moral commandment. And judgments, moral judgments. Well, I notice in uh, then then from the Buddhist perspective, morality isn't a commandment. It's not coming from above. It's the it's you deciding to take the precepts, not out of me kind of intimidating you into taking the precepts. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm forbidden to kind of. Eat. You know, you're going to go to hell if you don't take the five priests. <laughs> but it's uh, it's encouraging, you know, to rise up to where you ask for that. So that they're called precepts rather than commandments. They're guide. Put a precepts and the guidelines for behavior. You know, they're they're standards of conduct for awareness not for intimidation or create moral judgments on you and punish you if you break them. If you don't keep the precepts, then we're going to, to punish you in some way. So in this way, it's, it's coming from, it's internalized, and the sila then is something we, we realize is, is a great gift that that uh, that helps us uh, how to use the moral precepts for awareness rather than for attachment identity and so we we're going against the strong cultural uh, conditioning i admit but this is this is what the value of reflection is you begin to you know you 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 can change, you know, you don't have to be stuck and bound into your cultural habits, conditioning, emotional habits. Because of awareness, you can get perspective on them. The fear of being punished, the desire for re being rewarded. Um, these are the, the guilt that we create. You know, guilt is for, in Asia, for example, Guilt, there's kind of remorse and kind of shame at bad behavior, but it doesn't, it, don't, it doesn't tend to move in the direction of, of neurotic obsessions like it does in the West. So I've often contemplated why, what is it in our culture that makes us so guilt-ridden? You know, most of you I, I talk to, especially from the uh, Jewish Christian backgrounds, we have a lot of guilt. We're always feeling guilty. 
And then this is because this is how we're brought up, you know, to, to that we we have these ideals of what should be and commandments from above, and we're always never quite that good. We can never quite reach the heights and be that pure, and so we're guilt-ridden. There's always a sense of not having, not being good enough or pure enough. In Thailand, for example, where I lived, that's one of the attractive things was it wasn't uh, an, uh, an idealistic culture. In, in uh, northeast Thailand, where I lived, Lung Po Cha was very, you know, a wise person, wise man. And he, but he wasn't like some kind of sage off in, a, in, uh, in an ivory tower. He was very grounded, practical, humorous being. He was, he was like a real human being. He, he was humanity. Uh, his, his human limitations weren't, he wasn't guilty about human limitation, about having a human body or being a human being. He did not create problems, neurotic problems about being human. And if you notice in the Buddhist teaching, we contemplate humanity. You know, in the 22 Indrias, that teaching. We contemplate what a human being is. What is, what do we, we, we use the word, we think we know what it means. But do you really know what you mean when you say human being? <laughs> the reality of your own humanity. What do you mean by that in terms of right now? And then that takes reflection and consideration, isn't it? You think you, you understand, you, of course you're a human being, but do you really know what that is in the reality of now. Or the masculinity and femininity. We have ideals about gender and men and women and things like this. But do we really know what it's like? What being masculine is? What being feminine is as experienced now? Not in a judgmental way or analytic way, but just noticing the effect of a female body on consciousness or a male, uh, male body on consciousness. So this is a reflection on the way it is. Noticing the way it is. It's not saying one is better than the other. It's, it's not comparing or telling you how it should be. It's leaving it up to you to just wake up and notice. Not to identify anymore with being a man or a woman, or even being human, but, but these are the conditions that we, we have in the present moment. We either have a male body, a female body, a human body, it's like this. And that's a reflective observation, noticing. Because just using the word male or female, then we're aware of that in us. It's no longer just, uh, of course, I'm a male and, and men are like this and women are like that. It's not, it's not, it's not. That's just the, the conditioning process, the way our cultures regard these, these terms, but actually observing uh, the way it is in terms of our direct experience. So this is an awakening to the way things are. So the Buddha, 
is the one who knows. Uh, knows what? Knows the way it is. <laughs> knows the Dhamma. The word Buddha itself means awake. You know, so it's, it's, it's not somebody's name. It's not, uh, in, you know, you're not referring, you know, it refers to oftentimes the sage Gotama. But in terms of refuge, this is, in, we're not taking refuge in, in a dead sage, <laughs> but in, in that, in, in awareness now. So you see, it's very immediate. You begin to, to recognize that in yourself, which is a, what awakeness really is. When we say mindfulness, wait, what do we mean by that? We can, and, and then we start to think about, am I really mindful now? Or maybe I'm not mindful enough. And I start thinking about well, how mindful I am at this moment. I get confused. And I'm not mindful. <laughs> so, so it's not a matter of, of you know, um, figuring out how to be mindful, but it's an imminent act in the present, just right now, being alert, attent attentive, attentive, and trusting that attentiveness, that awareness, which, sus which is sustainable, because it's not a created state, it's not dependent on refining everything and controlling the environment or your mental state. So when we, we oftentimes in the Pali Buddhism they talk about uh, self enlightenment and and then we revert to you know I can do it all by myself I'll do it my way <laughs> and so this is and in Pali terms are not meant to be. Uh, you know, it's, it's using language uh, for reflection. It isn't, it isn't meant to be definitive because language only points at things in different aspects. But the reality of change, uh, you know, you, can't, you, you can see, you observe change and you can't describe it very well, you know, with words, but you can certainly observe it. When you always want to define every experience, in, then you, you'll be frustrated because so much of our life we can't, we have no concepts for, we have no words for, but we still experience. We don't tend to notice that like the highly conditioned human individual doesn't notice much outside of what they have names for. You know, you, you, you're conditioned to see this is, this is this and this is that and then you then you can, when you see this, then you, you really see it. But if you don't have a name for it, you, you tend to ignore it and the changing process. So attachment to thought tends to, to petrify experience. We're, it's always much more than it is. It's, and it, and, it, and we, we aren't, with the changingness of it, we, we hold on to views and impressions and memories. And then we're always limited in that way, bound into that 
that uh, cell of of limitation that we create. Like I have the somebody gave me this uh, modern sculpture, as you notice, in front of my cootie. And uh, and I like modern sculpture because. Uh, not all of it, but I mean, I do like I, even Bad's modern sculpture is, is worth, you know, looking at because they, just to observe what, what your mind does with it. And I'm like, I used to be of the, the kind where, you know, if it was definitely, I knew what it was, I felt comfortable with it. Like, this is a, this is a man because it's definitely, you know, like Greek god or something. This is Zeus and this is Venus and whatnot. But this is Jesus Christ and this is Buddha. And so, but when then uh, modern sculpture is, is, is oftentimes, you know, not, you don't know quite know what it is. Mind doesn't know what, 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 it, what, it, what they're doing. What's the point of it? So we tend to get averse to it. I quite looking at, like looking at modern sculpture just to see what my mind does with it. <laughs> and so that that sculpture in front of my cootie, you know, most people see it how they first they usually most people will see it as uh, some kind of abstract two two beings going like this to each other, one on each side, there, making Anjali to each other. And that's how, you know, most people have interpreted that. But it's actually the form of the Buddha. And so, but it's empty, isn't it? The, spa the, the space is the Buddha, and the, what would be the space around the Buddha is the solid part. It's a kind of reversal of the Buddha Rupa. And so this was, I, you know, when I saw this, this is what I saw, was that this is a, a Buddha, a Buddha Rupa sitting in, in lotus posture. A Buddha sitting in lotus posture. And, uh, and I like the idea because of the, uh, the no self emptiness. Then you've seen, seen Buddha rather than as a, as a, you know, the traditional icon of Buddha. It's, you're challenging your your perceptions with looking at it in a different way. You see, so the human mind is is very, you know, it's malleable. We can we can look at the same thing in many different ways. You know, once you free your mind from limitation, then you, you know, we we aren't bound to cultural conditioning or just uh, the old habits of thought and perception that that we've acquired. We we have we find a freedom of of looking at at experience in different from different perspectives. So consciousness isn't bound into, you know, we're not trying to bind consciousness into, f you know, through through just limiting conscious experience through the forms we create. Because consciousness has no boundary. Whereas sankara does, doesn't it? The, the sanya sankara, Vedana rupa sanya sankara has has boundaries. 
has form. Mindfulness has no boundary, doesn't have a form to it. So in, when, I, when I talk about being mindful, would you define mindfulness? What is it? Because <laughs> you'd like to put it into some kind of form, some context, some definition. But this is where it's, it's, it's uh, because it doesn't have any form, then you can't find it. You can't, you can't, you know, you don't trying to create a form that's called mindfulness, but learning to reflect on the reality of mindfulness as, as it is here and now. It's like this. Mindfulness is like this. Sati is like this. So that's reflecting, it's ob and observing, it's like this. And then it, by noticing that, then it, it y you know, you have the insight, the wisdom. Wisdom is then operative. <coughs> so on the human level, we have this ability to agree on behavior. You know, the law of the jungle means you just, uh, you survive, survival of the fittest, the strong over the weak. So, and, you know, you live in the jungle and then each creature has its own way of survival. You try to, try to ag make animals agree to the five precepts is, is an impossibility. And have a meeting, you know, invite all the cats and dogs and badgers and and uh, foxes and squirrels, rats and mice to give up killing each other. <laughs> and uh, you know that we, it's that we, you know, we we think they're immoral. That it's immoral for a cat to kill a mouse, but it's not. <coughs> That's its nature. Its nature is, it's made for killing mice. <laughs> so that's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> and, uh, and that's being a cat. Like being a human then is, uh, is like this. We, you know, we can, we can live in that same way. We, we can be quite the same as animals. You know, we, see, we see something moving and we want to kill it. You know, certainly not you know, many human beings are like that. They see see a bird off, they just want to shoot it. They see a rabbit down at Chitters, they want to k shoot it. And uh, it's just, you know, because it's moving and you want to, you know, the brings up this desire to, to, to get at, to kill it, is, uh, you know, many human beings are still on that level. But then, uh, or what we call human beings. But don't don't congratulate yourself on being a human being just because you you call yourself human. You have a human body. But uh, in Buddhism, humanity is much is isn't so much a, a it doesn't mean because so much of the physical condition, but the mental state. And uh, and then the mental being fully human is 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 a moral position. It's taking our humanity to the point where we agree, you know, on not intentionally killing each other, which would stop wars immediately if human beings would 
would recognize the value of just the first precept. Sometimes killing somebody is by accident, and that's, that's not an immoral act. But uh, it can't be helped. But if, but uh, it, this is about intention. So then, our humanity is is then say we're we're really human beings uh, when we have developed dana and sila, the the foundations for pavana or meditation. Dana is generosity, sharing what we have with others. We can we can be just miserly and selfish. It's mine, and I got here first, and you can't have it. <laughs> Or we can, we we can, you know, we we have these generous options, you know, to share what we have, and to and to agree on behavior. So, in the Buddhist world, of course, the five precepts are the kind of basis of sila. These five precepts, and they're just about not intentionally killing another human being, not intentionally taking something that belongs to somebody else. Not inten- uh, the third one about sexuality, not using sexual uh, experience just for selfish ends, for exploiting or harming or abusing others. Not to misuse sexuality. And, and we can be responsible for our sexuality. We couldn't be responsible for it, then the, the hopeless, but and being celibate would be, you know, beyond our ability. But because, and, and that sexuality is something that arises according to conditions. And then in monastic life, it's the life of, of the brahmacharya or celibacy. So it's not, it's not to repress or to feel guilty or to see sexuality as something bad, but to recognize what sexuality really is in terms of experience. The awareness. The Buddha sees the Nama. You're seeing sexuality in terms of, 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 of the reality of it when it's present and when it's absent. The relationship to to the sexual nature of, of your body is one of knowing it, n- not of just trying to deny, get rid, suppress, feel uh, guilty about it. Then, uh, in, but in the five precepts, it isn't that isn't chastity or or uh, celibacy. But it is taking responsibility, you know, to to not misuse. There's so many problems now in society because uh, sexuality is, uh, there's so many opinions and views. There's a movement now to go back to a very kind of repressive style. And then the other, the kind of hedonistic, do everything uh, you feel like doing. Don't deny or... Repress any sexual feeling, yeah, <laughs> and and people are very confused because they don't understand this this energy with it that we have in, in the human body. So celibacy is gives us that perspective, 
gives us perspective, not because uh, many lay people think of it as repression, as denial, which it can be, you know, not saying that everybody deals with their sexuality wisely, but that's not what we encourage. Then, uh, fourth is uh, Mutsawada refraining from misuse of language and speech. You know, like lying and and um, uh, abusing others, insulting, uh, abusive speech, and even to exaggeration or or just uh, foolish speech. So it's it's learning to to be responsible for what we say to each other in the in the society we're living in. Then the, the fifth around uh, drugs and drink, refraining from intoxicants. So we can agree to that. And then uh, th we ask the pr for the precepts, then we, then we observe. They're guidelines, they, they help us to be more aware when, these, when the conditions for the, these uh, opportunities arise. But they're not meant to, to be there to make you feel guilty and, uh, and endlessly failing and, and seeing yourself in terms of, uh, you know, moral, moral judgment. Uh, because then it's counterproductive, it's just reinforcing uh, the self-view. So in this monastic life, just to see the, you know, now it's up to each one of us to learn how to use it for awareness. And of course, in, in you know, a lifetime in the Sangha, it, you know, it brings up everything, you know, my, my uh, experience, my karma, my uh, character, you know, it, it, it's not an evasion. You don't get away with anything. But your, your way of, of experience, your way of looking at things changes from this uh, rigidity of, of, uh, of a self-centered view and identity towards an understanding through wisdom of the way things are. So I offer this as a reflection for today. <laughs> you know it?